several of the commentaries on this passage of Scripture note that the tone of the Egyptians' dealings with the Israelites seems already here in this final chapter of Genesis to be changing. It's not explicit. Of course, we know that as we begin Exodus, the Egyptians are going to enslave the Israelites. Many commentators have noted that there seems to be hints, little foreshadows of that in Genesis chapter 50. There are hints of uneasiness. We noted last week that when they went to bury Jacob in Canaan, all the servants of Pharaoh went, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt. It was a state funeral. And it says, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household, Genesis 50, verse 8. And then it says, only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. This could simply be just a practical necessity. Let's be honest. It would be hard to make a journey of what I understand was about 400 miles with a bunch of kids. That would be challenging. To be, to be quite frank with you, if I got news later tonight that one of my parents had passed away, maybe my whole family would go, but maybe I would just go. Because going up there and uh, trying to attend the funeral, trying to sort out all of the family issues that have to happen and stuff when someone dies and all the travel and the extra stress of having the kids... It might just be a practical necessity to leave them. I don't know. Obviously, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But you could easily see how, for practical reasons, they would decide to leave the kids behind. But, in favor of a different view, you will remember that in Exodus chapter 10, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. But Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. And he says, no, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. For that is what you're asking. In other words, by that time, Pharaoh was unwilling to let them leave the land of Egypt with their children. So by that time, the children had been an anchor point for the Israelites in Egypt. And they figured if the anchor was put down in the land of Egypt, the men could only go so far. It's like this with immigration laws in, in many places, um, or even just visiting many places. If you have ties in another country they're more likely to let you visit the country that you're trying to come into because there's a much better chance that you're going to go back if your kids are still there, for example. So many commentators have noted that that might be foreshadowing. Then 50.21, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Why did they need to be provided for after 17 years in Goshen. It may be, it may be that this is just a reaffirmation of the kindness that Joseph intended to continue to show to them. Back in Genesis 45 and verse 11, when Joseph first revealed himself to his brothers, and he invited them to come to the land of Egypt and said, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, etc., etc. And then in chapter 47 and verse 12, we read that Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. This was when they first came to Egypt 17 years ago, and it was during a famine. So it makes perfect sense why he would have provided for them then. But the question is, 17 years later, and many years after the famine, why did they need to be provided for? 
Again, it may just be that he's just reassuring them in the context here that they're anxious, that he can, intends to continue to care for them the way he has been all along. But it's also possible that there is a hostility developing between the Egyptians and the Israelites already, and that Joseph is... The, the brothers are concerned that Joseph is also going to turn against them, and so then they will have enemies... Uh, the Egyptians will be their enemies and their brother Joseph will no longer be a political shelter for them. And so Joseph is here offering them political refuge, as it were. This would fit with Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8, where it says, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us etc., etc., and enslaves them. It may be that Joseph was sort of the last linchpin keeping the Egyptians from dealing with the Israelites in an outright hostile manner. And then verse 26 concludes the whole book of Genesis. And what's the very last word in the book of Genesis? Egypt. What's, what's, what are some of the dominant themes in Genesis? We've been in here two years, so you should have a few words swirling in your mind, I hope. Good words that rightly capture. We don't have to boil it down precisely and exactly. But how about things like promise, covenant, Canaan? These are words that really sum up the theme of Genesis. But here we are with promise, covenant, Canaan as dominant themes. But the last word of Genesis is Egypt. So it's like this melody that's been playing all the way through Genesis. And then the last note is dissonant. It's one of those notes that is unresolved, that doesn't feel right. La, 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 da, da. <laughs> Something like that. You understand? It doesn't exactly fit. And so you have, at the end of Genesis chapter 50, possibly, if not probably, some foreshadowing about what we should expect as we turn the page. Perhaps the brothers are concerned about this developing hostility and this is why they are especially anxious. Or perhaps everything is fine with the Egyptians, but they're still simply guilt-ridden even after all these years. And their concern is merely what it appears to be on the face of it. Either way, at this juncture, 17 years after Joseph treated his brother so kindly, with such lavish grace and forgiveness, 17 years later, Joseph's brothers come and lie to him. They come with the story. Your father gave us this command. Well, actually, first it says they sent a message. They didn't even come themselves at first. They lead with a messenger. Like you remember how Jacob had led with the droves of gifts when he was coming back to Esau so many years earlier. So that hopefully by the time he actually appeared face to face with Esau, Esau would be favorably disposed. These guys lead with a messenger. Say to Joseph, please or your father gave this command before he died, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Then it says in verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, we are your servants. This is a, a lie. There's no real textual basis, thematic basis to think that there's any credibility to what these brothers are saying. In fact, it seems to be just basically their conclusion that arises when they talk about their concern that Joseph is going to treat them badly. 
it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message saying, your father gave us this command before he died. It seems that it's just that idea to do that has arisen simply from their circumstance. So it was a lie. We're not told whether Joseph knew it was a lie. If my brother and my sister came to me after my dad died and said, Dad said, treat us kindly. Don't hold against us the things we did to you when we were all kids. I would know it was a lie. (laughs) Because there's no possible way that my dad, just knowing my dad and knowing my family dynamics, there's no possible way that that would have actually been a real scenario. Joseph has had 17 years to get reconciled with his brothers and with his dad. He may have known full well that it was a lie, which would explain his weeping. That, again, after all this time, you just can't believe that I actually love you. You can't believe that I'm actually reconciled to you. You can't believe that I actually care. And here you guys are again, trying to manipulate me. Or it may just be that Joseph has just moved. Like, you don't have to be afraid of me, brothers. Even if he believed them, that this is actually what Jacob had said. He may just be moved that they were so concerned and that they were so afraid. You don't have to be afraid of me. And that that's the ground of his weeping. Whatever the case, Joseph answers very graciously with two theological truths about God's rule over an evil world. The first theological truth about God's rule over an evil world is that vengeance belongs to the Lord and therefore it's not ours to take. And the second is that God's good purposes are worked out even in or by means of the sins against us. These truths will form the majority of our sermon tonight, but first I want to give a clarification of something I said last Sunday morning. I said, I can't remember the exact words that I used, but I said something like this. God unfairs no one. We deserve all of our suffering. Nothing has happened to us that we don't deserve. This does not mean that we particularly and peculiarly each deserve the specific kind of suffering that we experience because of something that we did. So in other words, what I did not mean in saying that was that we would say something like, he deserved to be robbed or assaulted, or she deserved to be abused or raped. That's not at all what I meant when I said that God unfairs no one and that we deserve all of the suffering that we experience. I simply meant to communicate that no one can say to God concerning their lot in life, I deserve better than this. Literally no one has grounds to complain to God and say, I deserve better than this. And so it's not that we necessarily deserve every evil thing that the evil people around us may do to us throughout the course of our lives in a particular way because of some specific thing that we've done. But I meant to communicate simply that we can't accuse God of injustice in the way that he governs this world in the sense that he has dealt unfairly with someone or with a group of people. That's what I was trying to communicate. As soon as the words came out of my mouth last week, I thought that was not exactly right, but I didn't want to dig myself a deeper hole by trying to fix it on the spot. And because it's thematically related tonight, I thought it would be a good time to just clarify that point. We'll see the opposite tonight, that God unfairs no one. And to the contrary, God is working out his good purposes, even in and by means of the evil in this world. We'll get there eventually, but that's my clarification. So let's look, though, at the first theological point that Joseph answers with. 
which is that vengeance belongs to the Lord and is therefore not ours to take. Joseph wept. And then Joseph said to them in verse 19, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? It's a rhetorical question. He wasn't asking them. Am I really in the place of God? I'm not sure. Can you brothers inform me? That was not the sense of his question. The sense of his question was, I am not in the place of God. Therefore, do not fear. It is not my responsibility to execute vengeance upon you. We do not have the authority as individuals to execute vengeance. Joseph had a certain state authority, but that ship sailed long ago. Remember, 17 years has gone by since he revealed himself to his brothers. It would be incredibly unjust after all these years to do nothing, do nothing, do nothing, act like everything's forgiven, act like they're reconciled, and then all of a sudden get the state machinery moving to prosecute these brothers. There is what's called a statute of limitations in many legal codes, which means if it hasn't been prosecuted yet, it can't be prosecuted at this late date. Something like this is in in play here. It wouldn't be just for Joseph to even act as a state official and prosecute these men 17 years later. And so he has no stately authority. He has no personal authority to execute vengeance upon his brothers. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 tells us something that is hard for us to accept. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. I was listening to a pastor from Jamaica talk about how if somebody was trying to come through his window at two in the morning, he would shoot them because he would assume they weren't coming for a sandwich. Vengeance is not the same thing as defense. There's a big difference. It's okay for us to protect ourselves, to protect our homes. That's a conversation for another night. Vengeance is like revenge. It's like exacting justice. It's not up to us as individuals. It says here, beloved, never avenge yourselves. There are a couple of movies in which one may find something of a satisfying sense of vengeance. One movie is Man on Fire, which is... 2004 movie starring Denzel Washington. And there's a little girl who is kidnapped. She's actually presumed dead. And Denzel Washington goes around basically executing vengeance upon her kidnappers until he realizes that she's alive. And then, well, I'll leave the ending to you if you decide that that movie is something you'd like to watch and is appropriate for you. We watch it and we may find that we have a certain sense of satisfaction in seeing Denzel Washington execute vengeance on these wicked and evil men who have kidnapped this little girl. But we have to ask ourselves, is it biblical? Beloved, never avenge yourselves. It doesn't say it's okay <clears throat> that so-and-so did such-and-such such to you. It doesn't say they don't deserve to be punished. What does it say? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. It's God's job to take vengeance. It's God's job to avenge. If something happened to my children, 
if something happened to my wife and I found out who was behind it, I would strongly feel that I want to go and take vengeance. It would be very difficult, I think, actually, in all honesty, for me to obey this imperative. I would be uncomfortable with it. It would be challenging for me. But it doesn't mean that it's not biblical. It seems very clear here. What about in such and such a situation? Should you take vengeance in that situation? Never avenge yourselves. But what if it was something really bad that was done? Never avenge yourselves. It's God's job here. The scripture tells us. It's God's job. God has agents, instruments of vengeance in this world. Romans 13 goes on immediately after this section about never avenging yourselves. Romans 13 goes on to say, If you do wrong, be afraid, for the governing authorities do not bear the sword in vain. For he or they are servants of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. As hard as it is, we're to refrain from mob justice. We're to refrain from vigilante justice. We're to leave it to the state. And if the state doesn't execute their responsibilities, then we're to leave it till the judgment day. This is what the scripture teaches us. It seems that Joseph knew that. Joseph understood that. And Joseph acquiesced to that. In fact, to the contrary, does it seem like Joseph was eager for the day of judgment? Does it seem that Joseph was really waiting for his brothers to get what was coming to them? I don't think so. When you look at how he dealt with them 17 years earlier, when they first came back into his life, Joseph was moved, it says, and he, he wept and he revealed himself to them. He said, come live with me in Egypt and I'm going to provide for you. Are those the actions of someone that can't wait for God's wrath to be poured out upon their enemy? No. That's the heart of someone who understands grace. Someone who understands forgiveness. Again, grace and forgiveness don't mean it doesn't matter. Grace and forgiveness don't mean it's okay. Grace and forgiveness don't mean do it over and over again. Who cares? Grace and forgiveness are, I know it was wrong. It hurt. It was bad. I choose not to hold it against you. I choose not to seek vengeance against you. When we suffer evil against us, our hearts will tend to do one of two things. We will tend to at least imagine, if not plan revenge. Or we will tend to imagine, if not plan, reconciliation. That's what our hearts will tend to do when evil is committed against us. We're either thinking about, man, it would be so nice if I just did this to such and such a person, or if someone else did this to such and such a person to get back at them, to execute vengeance upon them for what happened. Or we will tend to think, man, that was so wrong. It hurts so bad. But imagine how great it would be if we could get through this. If we could be reconciled. If grace, if love, if forgiveness could be shown. And good could come out of this bad situation. That would be awesome. Our hearts are going to tend to go one way or the other. Why evil is committed against us. In God's providence, 
We saw a very vivid example of grace and forgiveness in the international news this week. You know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Brand John. Both of them John's brother. I was I was just dumbfounded when I saw how he responded to his brother's killer. There have been a lot of there's been a lot of discussion generated by that incident this week. Whether her sentence was harsh enough, whether a person of color would have got the same sentence, etc., etc. I'm not trying to resolve all of those controversies and questions here tonight. But listen, some people are just making this way too complicated. Brand John is a Christian. And his brother was a Christian. And someone sinned against him. And he chose to love and forgive. And he chose to preach Christ. And he chose to seek reconciliation. In this age of wokeness, a lot, of, a lot of things are getting real complicated. Grace, forgiveness, reconciliation. These are basic, elementary Christian concepts. If you feel like you can't extend grace or forgiveness or reconciliation to someone because of the color of their skin, whether they're black or white, that's a problem. God calls us to be the kind of people whose hearts don't brood on vengeance when evil is committed against us. There's nothing wrong at all with longing for justice. There's nothing wrong at all with waiting for the day of the Lord. Grace doesn't actually mean what Branjean said to Geiger. I don't even want you to go to jail. Grace and forgiveness doesn't necessarily even mean that. Grace and forgiveness might look like, I forgive you. But this judicial penalty is still right and fitting. God calls us to be the kind of people, though, that aren't just brooding on vengeance, who just can't wait to see Jehovah's Witnesses burn in hell, who just can't wait to see homosexuals burn in hell, who just can't wait to see atheists burn in hell, who just can't wait to see the people who have hurt us in this way or in that way in our life burn in hell. God calls us to be the kind of people whose hearts are not brooding on vengeance, but people who love grace, who love forgiveness, who love reconciliation. I am not one for glossing over serious issues. I'm not one for forgive and forget for a a cheap kind of forgiveness that doesn't confront people with their wrongdoing, that doesn't expect repentance of them that restores them too quickly to positions of um, either moral qualification like the pastorate or positions of uh, power or where they may make someone vulnerable again. Um, I wouldn't be quick to have an abusive man move back in with his wife after a quick apology. I'm not on that end of the spectrum. But God calls us to be the kind of people whose hearts are thinking about how a marriage could be reconciled even when there's being abuse. How someone could be forgiven how they could hear the gospel and be changed, even if they've raped or murdered. God calls us to be the kind of people whose hearts are not brooding on vengeance. 
we recognize that it's God's job. He will set everything right in the end. We embrace, we accept, we support judicial penalties in the meantime. And we know that in God's courts, every sin will be either dealt with in hell or at the cross of Jesus Christ. But every sin will be punished. The penalty will be served and God will do justly. And so within that framework, we leave it to God. We may, like the martyrs, cry out, How long, O Lord? And struggle with the injustices that we see around us. We may speak and march and protest for justice in the meantime. We may campaign, we may legislate for justice. In fact, biblically defined, biblically defining justice, which is a whole other conversation in itself. We must do these things. We must pursue justice. As Christians, we're not to be okay with injustice. And yet in the midst of it all, we're not to be people who brood on vengeance. People who would rather see the unjust go to hell than go to heaven. Who would rather see abusers and murderers go to hell than go to heaven. In the current climate with racial tensions and so on and so forth, like I mentioned, wokeness and all this kind of stuff, if we would rather see Black Lives Matter protesters go to hell than go to heaven. There's something wrong. If we'd rather see people on the other end of the spectrum make America great again, hat wearers go to hell than go to heaven. There's something wrong. There are real things that need to be discussed, real conversations that need to be had, so on and so forth. Terms to be defined, processes to be thought through, worked out, so on and so forth. But through it all, wherever we are on that spectrum, we're not to be the kind of people who are brooding on vengeance. Leave it with the Lord and be people who love Grace, forgiveness, reconciliation. What does it say in the scriptures? Do justice, yes. Do justice, yes. Love mercy. And walk humbly with God. Joseph seems to understand this. So he says, am I in the place of God? Don't fear. Am I in the place of God? The sense of which is, I am not in the place of God. The second thing that he goes on to say is, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Essentially what Joseph knows and what he's communicating to his brothers is that God's purposes are worked out even in the midst of In fact, stronger than that, God's purposes are worked out even by means of the sin against us. Let me say that second statement again. God's purposes are worked out even by means of the sin against us. Look at what it says here. You meant evil against me, but God meant it. What was it? The selling of Joseph into slavery. You see? You meant it. What? The selling into slavery. But God meant it. You see, the reference is the same. That thing that happened, which was motivated by the brother's evil, 
that same thing was meant by God. John Piper was preaching, I forget what language the translation was in, but Piper knew enough of the language to know that when he was saying planned or decreed, the translator was saying permit. And so Piper was saying, God planned this. God planned that. God decreed this. God decreed that. And the translator was saying, God permitted this. God permitted that. God permitted this. God permitted that. And so Piper stopped the sermon and said to the guy, translate it properly. (laughs) This is a really important point. Did God simply permit Joseph to be sold into slavery? Or did God mean for Joseph to be sold into slavery? Did God simply permit the suffering in your life? Or did God mean the suffering in your life? There's a huge difference between those two things. A very big difference between those things. And at first we might want to say, well, let's say permit because then it makes God seem a little better and it's a little bit more comforting to us. But the reality is then there are things going on in your life which are less than ideal. There are things going on in your life in which God is not, are not going according to God's plan and are not going according to God's purpose. And that, yeah, he's going to bring something good from it because we know Romans 8.28, but wouldn't it have been so much better if that never happened and God's ideal purpose could have been accomplished? You understand? It's actually not as comforting in the final analysis than to know that everything that has happened to you that will ever happen to you. God means for it to happen to you. It doesn't mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean that the action itself is good. It doesn't mean that the people who did it to you are good. They may be very evil. Joseph says here to his brothers, you meant evil. There are people in this world who mean evil, and they do evil to us. And God will hold them accountable for their evil. He will either lay those specific sins which were committed against you upon Christ Jesus on the cross, and He will say, that is sufficient punishment. In which case, you should also look and say, that is sufficient punishment. Or, He will send that person to burn in hell for what they did to you. And God will say, that is sufficient punishment. And you should also look and say, that is sufficient punishment. So God will deal with that. Don't worry. But understand that when Joseph's brothers meant evil, when people in your lives have done things to you, evil things, they've meant evil to you, for you. God has also meant those things for good. For good. You'll notice on the inside of your program, There's a short quote from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, As the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner it takes care of His church and disposes of all things to the good thereof.
God meant it for good. We don't always know how and why and what God is doing in the varying circumstances of our lives. We don't have easy answers for those things. Sometimes we see it later and we can look back and we can see God's good purpose in whatever has happened to us, in whatever has transpired. In Joseph's case, it was pretty clear. Joseph was sold into slavery so that he could be exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, where he would keep many people alive, as verse 20 of our text tells us. Sometimes you'll see eventually something likewise clear. If this had never happened, that would never have happened. And that was a good thing. And so you can see how God brought the bad thing to pass in order to do the good thing to you, or whatever. Sometimes, like Job, you go through the whole thing, and in the end of it, God says, Hey, listen, I'm God, and you're not God. So, stop questioning me. Brace yourself like a man, and I'm going to question you. Sometimes that's how it looks. But it doesn't mean that God wasn't up to something good. Even in Job's case, God was doing good. He was glorifying himself. He was maturing Job. Instead of our hearts responding by brooding on vengeance, as I said earlier, We should be thinking about grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, even as we accept and seek right justice. With respect to the second theological point, we should be asking ourselves, what is God doing? What was God doing by means of the sin against us? Instead of assuming that God wasn't doing anything. Instead of railing against God. Instead of acting as if that part of your life is beyond God's reach. That God only cares for a subset of your life. But in that instance, you were too far. God's arm was too short and he was not able to reach you there. Ask yourself. Pray and ask God, what were you doing there? What were you doing in that circumstance, in that incident, in that instance? What are you doing now? I know these people mean it for evil. And how long, O Lord, until you execute justice? What are you doing here and now? How might you be working through this. We see in Joseph's life that God was working for good. All those years that Joseph was serving in Potiphar's house, those years that he was in the prison, he must have wondered, why? Why? And he couldn't see it. But just because he couldn't see it, it doesn't mean, it didn't mean that God wasn't up to something good. And eventually it became clear. We see in Christ on the cross another example of something that some meant for evil. The rulers of the earth, the kings, gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed and Jesus hung there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we know that like Joseph, it was meant to save. So with Christ, it was meant to save. God was bringing to pass good things by means of the evil deeds committed against his loved ones. It was the case with Joseph. It was the case 
with Jesus, it will be the case with us. We need to trust it. We need to embrace that framework. In this very last section of Genesis 50, Joseph dies and says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. We could talk about how Joseph died by faith the same way that Jacob did, which we talked about in our sermon last week. But I think coming after this section about Joseph saying, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's better for us to categorize this last section under that heading. God purposed even the slavery of his people in Egypt. For what? We could probably think of a few things here. It was a time of concentrated, accelerated growth where God's people multiplied. Egypt became actually something of an incubator which turned Israel into a numerous nation. Over two million came out of Egypt. The formation of a nation state happened quite naturally and easily when all of these people came out together and were assembled at Sinai and God constituted the nation state of Israel. As opposed to, you might imagine, if they had lived in Canaan for all these years and then all of a sudden some prophet stands up and says, all who are descendants of Abraham, but uh, not through Ishmael, only through Isaac, and not through Esau, but only through Jacob, assemble and we will form a nation state. You can imagine how difficult and how unnatural that, I mean, I'm not going to say God couldn't do it. God can do anything, but you can see how God used it to make the formation of a nation state very clear, a very clear and distinct nation state. God gave us, through the enslavement of his people in Egypt, categories to think about redemption. They were enslaved, but God sent someone to rescue them from slavery. They deserved to have death visit them, but if they applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their home, the angel of death would pass over them. We're going to come to it in due time, but in Exodus 14, God says that you're about to see me get glory over the gods of Egypt. We see the victory of God over rival deities. All of these things are things which teach us and form us and give us categories to understand the work of Christ Jesus, who brought us out of slavery, who is the lamb that we apply to ourselves that we might not die who conquered over our enemies and led them in a triumphal procession, Colossians chapter 2 tells us. In our individual lives, in our corporate lives as God's people, the church, God means the evil that happens to us. And he means it, as Joseph says here, for good. And so when evil happens to us, don't brood on vengeance. Think about it, yes. Pursue it via appropriate means, sure. Do justice, yes. But love mercy. And trust that God's purposes are worked out in your lives, 
individually and in our lives together as his people, even by means of the evil that happens to us. These are two things that Joseph seemed to very clearly understand. And these are the two things that form the basis of his response to his brothers here in this passage. Look at the kind of man that was formed by embracing these two theological truths. Next to Christ Jesus, we may be hard-pressed to find another figure in Scripture who is held up as such an example to us in the pages of Holy Writ. Joseph is spoken very highly of. In fact, as we've seen, he is presented to us in the pages of Genesis as sort of a prefiguration of Christ. Joseph is uniformly commendable in Genesis. The grace which he responds with which he responds to his brothers, the wisdom with which he rules the land of Egypt. We read about Joseph and we think, what a great figure. These were the theological truths that formed that kind of man. May we ultimately aim to be Christ-like. And I'm not trying to put Christ and Joseph on par. But under Christ, if we're looking for examples, we could do worse than Joseph. And if we would aspire after being Christ-like to be somebody-like, we would do well to aspire to be Joseph-like. Look and see what's the fruit of his wrestlings with God, the fruit of his meditation, the fruit of his anguish, the fruit of his prayers as he processes the evil that occurred against him. What theological truths did he arrive at and what enabled him to respond with such grace to his brothers the first time when, they, when he revealed himself to them, but even these 17 years later? What enabled him to continue and to persevere this way with them? It was these two theological truths. That vengeance is not ours to take. It's the responsibility of the Lord. And that God means even the evil that happens to us for good. May we trust as God's people today as Joseph was so long ago that God will execute justice on our behalf that God is at work even by means of the evil that happens to us in our lives even today. May we be formed to be the kind of people that Joseph was, the kind of people that Christ ultimately is.